0: During the reign of Saul, there was a war that was about to take place. The Philistines were gathering an army to fight against Israel. Saul gathered all of his people together to face the army that approached their land. But when he saw their numbers, a fear began to grow within him. Saul called out to the Lord to intervene, to give him a sign through his dreams, but nothing came. So Saul resorted to the Urim and Tumim those white and black stones we talked about in a previous episode, but God still did not provide the answer he sought. He then called on the prophets to assemble in his courts to decree the outcome of the war at hand, but every prophet drew a blank. Saul only had one option left. There was a woman who had contact with the great prophet Samuel. Saul knew Samuel had favor with God and that he would be able to provide the answers he so desperately needed. So he adorned a disguise and made the journey to a small Canaanite village in the Valley of Jezreel. He sought out the woman and when he found her, he begged her to get in touch with Samuel on his behalf to provide him some answers. So the woman went and woke Samuel and brought him before Saul. Samuel asked Saul, why have you disturbed me? and Saul fell on his face and proclaimed the troubling news about the Philistine army sitting at their doorstep and the war to come. Then Samuel delivered some not so great news. Has the Lord not turned away from you and became your enemy, Samuel asked? Today the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Samuel continued, The Lord will give Israel into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow You and your sons shall join me." Saul fell face first into the ground paralyzed with fear. Not only was his nation about to be torn from his grasp, but he was told he was about to join Samuel in his resting place, which may not sound too frightening until you realize who this woman Saul came to see was. She was known as the Witch of Endor, a conjurer of spirits, a medium, if you will which is why she was the only one who could access samuel because he was dead this is itinerant biblical history beyond the bible presented by the reckless pursuit and i'm cody johnston If you've ever spent any time in church culture, you would be well informed that witchcraft is forbidden. But what many of us are not informed of is what constitute witchcraft in the first place. And if witchcraft is so bad, why do biblical characters who follow God use it so much? Many instances in the Bible speak about forms of sorcery and how they are completely off limits, only for God to use those very things. Take the craft of Nahash as an example. Nahash literally translates to hissing or whispering. So why then did God come to Elijah as a whisper in 1 Kings? Or what about Onan, the practice of reading clouds as signs, also known as Aromancy? We all know the story of the Israelites following a pillar of cloud by day to the Promised Land. Oh, and then there's Kashaf, which literally translates to herb user. Good luck selling your Young Living oils at church if that gets out. The honest truth is that what many people have previously viewed as witchcraft has long been misunderstood forms of science or even miracles. The more you look into it the more you realize that the differences in witchcraft and a divine miracle are mostly tied in the intent. Sure. There are accounts of idolatry and pagan practices tied to many forms of witchcraft, but often these things are eerily similar, if not the exact same practices performed by our beloved Bible characters. So for the sake of the Halloween season and our love for all things creepy, let's take a look at some of our most beloved Bible characters and their stories. We might be amazed at just how similar our beliefs are, to many of our not-so-sacred counterparts. Let's start by clearing the air on what witchcraft even is. Webster's Dictionary primarily describes witchcraft as the use of sorcery or magic. But let's not stop there because to understand the use of something, we must also understand what is being used. And with witchcraft, the tool being used is magic. Magic has a few definitions, all of which are pertinent to today's episode. I'll list them in order. The power of apparently influencing the course of events by using mysterious or supernatural forces. Having or apparently having supernatural powers. The use of means such as charms or spells believed to have supernatural power over natural forces. Something that seems to cast a spell or enchantment. There's a few others, but these are the ones that really fit the bill for what we're talking about today. Now that we cleared the air with all of that, let's begin. Let's start with Moses. We know the stories of the plagues. We remember the rod Aaron carried and how Moses cast it down to turn it into a snake. But how often do we let that very idea sink in? Moses threw down a stick and it turned into a serpent. And guess who did the same? That's correct, the Egyptian magicians. And before we go jumping to conclusions, I would like to remind all of us that Moses was raised in the inner courts of the Egyptians. He knew their arts and while being a Hebrew by nature, he was most certainly an Egyptian by nurture. And then there's the battle between Israel and the Amalekites. It is said in Exodus chapter 17 that every time Moses would lower his arms, the Amalekites would start to overcome the Israelites. But so long as he kept his arms raised, Israel would prevail. I take it Aaron and Ur were pretty superstitious considering God never decreed for Moses to keep his hands in the air for the duration of an entire war. But hey, if it works, it works, I suppose. The last account of Moses we will be looking at is found in the book of Numbers. The Israelites were grumbling against God for leaving them to wander in the wilderness and for their lack of bread and water. So God, being in a completely good mood, I assume, sent an army of snakes to bite and kill the Israelites. There's a bit of irony here, being that the book of Matthew states that God, being good, knows how to give good gifts and doesn't give a serpent when asked for food. Thank God for New Testament grace, I guess. Luckily, God listened to Moses' prayers and gave him instruction to craft a bronze snake on a pole. To me, that sounds a lot like an idol, but since it came from God, I guess it works. According to God's change of heart, anyone who was bitten could look at the bronze snake and would survive their venomous encounter. In Genesis 30, we find an interesting story concerning Jacob. Leah, Jacob's first wife, in which he was tricked into taking instead of her sister Rachel, had a son named Reuben. One day Reuben was in the field when he stumbled across a rare plant with amazing capabilities. The Book of Genesis doesn't go into a lot of the details on this plant other than to give us its name, the Mandrake Root. It is said that Leah traded some of her mandrakes to her sister Rachel in exchange for a night of intimate sex with Jacob and she became pregnant with another son. But the real question here is why would Rachel desire a mandrake root even to the point of trading a knight with her true love away? And how convenient was it that God opened her previously barren womb right after acquiring such a plant? Well, some of these answers can be found in understanding what the Mandrake even is. Mandrakes have been used in witchcraft for centuries. It receives its name, Mandrake, from looking eerily similar to the form of a human. The best way I can describe what it looks like is, if nature made a voodoo doll, this is it. Which, ironically, is just one of the magical uses it is believed that this plant contains. It is said that one can use the mandrake to control a human body, to heal ailments and, of course, to open one's womb and assist in reproduction. Quite a convenient overlap, don't you think? With the favor of the Lord and possibly a little mandrake, Jacob and Rachel finally were able to conceive a son they named Joseph. The same Joseph that was sold into Egypt and as a matter of fact, the next instance we will be looking at. After selling Joseph into slavery into Potiphar's home, his honesty quickly exalted him to, as the Bible says, a place with the authority like Pharaoh. He was second in command and because of his understanding of the Pharaoh's dreams, he had prepared Egypt for the coming famine. Egypt thrived during the season of lack and people from across the countryside came to receive food from their surplus. One day, Joseph found himself looking down from his throne at his brothers who had no idea they were in the presence of family. Joseph, being wise, planted his silver chalice in one of their bags and had his servant follow them to ensure they did the right thing and confessed to their error. Long story short, he learned that his brothers had changed their ways and they were able to come back together once again. Sweet story, except for a few parts we often gloss over. It seems Joseph learned a few things during his stay in Egypt because this chalice was no ordinary cup. This was a cup of divination. A cup that Joseph used to predict the future. And these are not my words, these are his. Because on more than one occasion, he declared his ability to read the events to come and to know the outcomes of his brother's fate. Which I am sure is the reason he was willing to plant such an important item on one of his brother's person. After all, he would have to know it would find its way back. I guess that's a skill worth drinking to. The Bible is full of stories that bear a striking resemblance to similar off-limit practices. Things like reading the future, talking to the dead, and curses. But what about when it's a prophet? Does that still count? Because in 2 Kings chapter 2 we find Elisha taking up Elijah's mantle. It's a relatively straightforward passage up until the end of the chapter where this little story gets sprinkled in. At the very end of chapter two, it is recorded that a mob of young boys were harassing Elijah, calling him a bald head. This obviously got on the prophet's nerves, who decided to inflict a curse on the children. From the woods came two she bears who mauled 42 of the children, leaving them wounded and possibly dead. And that gave Elijah an escape from the uh, sheer torture they inflicted on him. A little extreme, don't you think? And then we come to constellations, astrology, and numerology. While deemed as a purely pagan practice, many of the biblical figures we look up to themselves looked up to the heavens for answers. The magi who followed the star to find Jesus, were most likely Zoroastrian priests who used the stars as a form of a predictive tool. Many believe the shepherds were also astrological practitioners due to certain sects of those who watched the stars being called shepherds in some ancient texts. And then we come to the book of Revelation, a book that has scared the wits out of young children and adults alike for ages. 24 elders, creatures made entirely of eyes, flying serpents and beasts with four faces, That's some nightmare invoking stuff John saw on that exiled isle. But when we start to break it down, it's really not so frightening after all. I invite you to think about this. What is a constellation? Well, it's in the shape of a familiar being and it's made out of a bunch of stars. Almost like some kind of creature made of eyes. And what do constellations do? They rotate with the earth, almost like they are circling around a throne. But what about the four-faced cherubim, the same creatures mentioned both in Ezekiel and Revelation? They can only move forward, backward, or side to side. How could a four-headed beast be related to the stars? Well, what are those faces? A bull, a lion, a man, and an eagle, right? Well, that translates perfectly to the four cardinal signs on the zodiac wheel. Leo the lion, Taurus the bull, Aquarius the man pouring out water, and Scorpio which had two signs in traditional astrology, the scorpion for the bad, and the eagle for the good. Not to mention the 24 elders that bow down being representative of the 24 hours in a day. And then you have all the numerology associated with the seals and the lampstands. Yes, Revelation is just one big book full of divination, but it's from God, so that makes it okay. Christianity has a history with being a bit dramatic when it comes to things like witchcraft and sorcery. In Europe between the years of 1550 and 1700 AD, over 40,000 people were burned alive at the stake based on a simple accusation that they were a witch. Honest, family-oriented, even church-going people were drugged out of their homes and unfairly tried based on obscene evidence. Things like witch's marks, scarring tests, and one crazy notion that witches couldn't sink. This led to people tying alleged witches to large objects and tossing them into a body of water. If they sank, they were not a witch, and even though they drowned, at least they were righteous in the eyes of God. But if they floated, they would be taken and roasted alive. This might seem unthinkable to us now, but at the time, this was just life. But there was one test in particular that I think sums up this whole conversation nicely, and that was the test of the witch's cake. The witch's cake was an idea brought to the table by Mary Sibley, an honest churchgoer in Salem, Massachusetts. It was believed that her strange concoction would reveal the names of those who had cast a curse on the innocent daughters of the local minister. These cakes were prepared by taking the urine of the young girls, mixing it into a bread, and then it was fed to the dog of the alleged witch. Why the dog, you ask? Well witches were believed to have something called a familiar. A witch's familiar was like their spirit guide that often took the form of a pet. It was believed that if they fed the familiar one of these witches' cakes, the creature would throw it back up and would audibly say the name of their master. Needless to say, this didn't work as planned, but it's still ironic. The newly established Protestant church was so afraid of witchcraft that they resorted to using the very thing they were afraid of the most. In the end, the only people practicing witchcraft were the very ones hunting it. The imagery of magic and witchcraft hold a strange place in our minds. On one hand, you have a fun holiday that plasters witches as old hags stirring their kettles bubbling over with green goop. On the other, you have the ever-present reality that more harm has been done in the name of ridding the world of witchcraft than good, and still yet on another, we have the superstition of those things which we just don't understand. But let that be a lesson to be careful, because many things are based on one's intent, and what might seem like the work of the devil to you might just be the love of God to someone else. Thank you for listening to this episode of Itinerant. If you enjoy the show, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and share it on with a friend. Word of mouth is a powerful thing, and your recommendation is much appreciated. You can find out more about me and the show at itinerantpodcast.com. I co-host another podcast called The Reckless Pursuit, The Reckless Pursuit is a show dedicated to providing a safe place for Christians to ask unsafe questions. If you need a community of people where you can talk about your questions safely, we might just be your tribe. No matter your current church status or even religious views, all questions are welcome to help us grow and lay down our spiritual baggage. So if you feel like a spiritual nomad, we invite you to stop and rest. The journey is long, but the beauty lies within it. And until next time, keep searching. You never know what mysteries lie ahead.